These Postscript shows are supported by Fanatic.com, the fin rental company that ships Futures Fins, Rainbows Fins, FCS Fins, all the brands straight to your mailbox, Thrusters Quads, Singles Twins, anything you want to try. Fanatic has it, and you can keep them for as long as you want. Just send them back in the prepaid envelope that Fanatic provides. All of that, the shipping, the fins, all of it is covered in a $10 monthly subscription fee. Unbelievable deal. Um, You'll even get your first month free, actually, when you use our promo code PODCAST. But more importantly, that'll also help support this show. So do yourself a favor, improve your surf experience, and expand your quiver with Fanatic.com. Promo code PODCAST. Thanks. My name is David Scales, and this is my postscript to the 2019 Corona J-Bay Open. This sixth event of the season marks the halfway point, and it dawned on me midway through the event that it also signifies an extra level of importance. When the round of 16 opened on the seventh day of the waiting period after multiple lay days, in that first heat of the morning light, Jordy Smith looked disinterested and lethargic. It stood in stark contrast to Felipe Toledo later in the day, Gabriel Medina in that next heat, or even Jordy's current opponent, Owen Wright. It dawned on me that perhaps the best marathon runners are the ones who train for the middle of the race, when so many other runners are zoned out, not making moves, but just really trying to keep their pace. Everybody is hyper alert at the beginning of the race and at the end, but world titles often come down to a single heat somewhere buried mid-season when it seems inconsequential and only retrospection reveals its importance. For 32 male athletes, 16 female athletes, and nearly the entire viewing audience, the exhaustive first two days of competition were inconsequential. On the men's side, we utilized that time and those resources to lose Barrick DeVries, Jordan Cousinet, Jesse Mendez, and Jadson Andre, who, by the way, logs his fourth 17th of the season. His other finish was a 33rd, and he's already qualified for the championship tour next year via his qualifying series results. So both these things should highlight some fundamental flaws in the structure of these tours and how it undermines the primary goal of putting the best surfers in the best waves, and then more importantly, selling that experience to the viewing public. As one might predict, at a classic venue like J-Bay, the marquee names performed best throughout the early rounds. There's no trickery at J-Bay. The open walls and the pacing of the wave requires one to carry speed, never fully releasing it on any one maneuver. We always hear about how J-Bay will expose a surfer's weaknesses. I would argue that it also exposes missteps in their heat strategy, but more on that later. Everyone also says that pacing is the key to surfing well at J-Bay, and that's really hard to argue against, but it's also important to note that the fastest surfers are also the most winning surfers at J-Bay. When it's anything less than pumping, it's the surfer's energy that brings thrill to the ride. Think back to Curran's first ride. His energy adds pizzazz to that wave. All of Fanning's and Kelly's best waves over the years, you can attribute to the spark in their surfing. Felipe is probably the best example of this. And again, I'm talking about when J-Bay isn't pumping and, you know, well overhead. Felipe's speed and electricity 
adds a dimension to the wave that somebody simply surfing the wave on pace does not offer. So let's go back to Jordy with that in mind. Jordy entered this event ranked fourth in the world. He finished J-Bay in ninth and now is ranked sixth. His loss to Owen Wright is such an interesting heat to analyze. I watched it live and I felt like Jordy was surfing better than Owen. More variety, uh, power, more flair. Owen had better waves and more flow. And in real time, Martin Potter was assessing Owen as the better surfer. And even though I was assessing Jordy as the better surfer, I kind of got swayed by Potter's influence where I could at least see where he was coming from. And the judges actually validated Potter's assessment. This particular heat highlights how far we are from an objective or definitive criteria. And while it was an unfortunate loss for Jordy, he failed on heat strategy. He picked the lesser waves. And more importantly, he let that final set wave pass to Owen. Jordy has always surfed well, but his lack of success is more a reflection of those poor strategic decisions. And that, by contrast, became evident in the very next heat with a surfer who never fails on heat strategy. Ryan Callanan held the lead over Gabriel Medina up until the very last two minutes. It was a tenuous lead. Gabriel just needed a couple of mid-range scores to advance, but needing two waves in the final two minutes is enough to disrupt most surfers' focus. This was a turning point of the season for Gabriel, and he may be able to attribute a potential third world title to these two minutes. He's known to find his focus mid-season, specifically at J-Bay, and this is the precise moment where that coalesced. With two minutes and 30 seconds left in the heat, Ryan paddled for a wave and then decided not to go, and he lost priority. Fatally, he gave Gabriel impunity in the lineup. Gabriel rode an average wave to a 5.97, and then he grabbed another for a 6.97, and the best score of the heat. In the end, it was virtually equivalent surfing from both athletes, less than a point separating their heat totals, but the winner was decided by, guess what? heat strategy. The most notable performance of the round would have also been a foretelling of the event winner had the waves not doubled in size. Felipe Toledo, who sometimes fails on heat strategy, utilized that sparky energy to distinguish himself from every other surfer of the day, with Kanoa Igarashi being the only relatable reference point. Felipe was the defending two-time champ of this event, and he looked poised for that three-peat. He maintained that form through the quarterfinals, interestingly, solely relying on his rail surfing and exhibiting beautiful flow through each ride. Unsurprisingly, it was Felipe's old nemesis that ended his campaign, sizable swell. His unrivaled energy and speed is nullified on J-Bay's larger walls. The question of fear that plagues him at Chopu and Pipeline wasn't so much an issue at bigger J-Bay, as even the biggest waves lack real consequence. Rather, it's that his strengths simply have less applicability there. And once again, his loss was directly related to heat strategy, picking the lesser waves as the swell continued to grow. He faced Idolo Ferreira, who's underperformed since his win on the Gold Coast, and in their first exchange, they both surfed beautifully, but Idolo bested him by half a point, mainly due to being on a larger wave. 
With five minutes left and Felipe needing an 8.18, he took off on a mid-sized wave and surfed it to a five, leaving Idolo out the back to grab the set wave, which he bettered his lead over Felipe with, and uh, got an eight-point ride to back up his 9.5 from earlier, and he closed out the heat. Felipe's third-place finish after his win at Rio moves him forward one spot into second on the rankings. Four-time J-Bay champ Kelly Slater finished ninth for his third event in a row. He lost to eventual finalist Idolo Ferreira, which was really unfortunate simply because we never got a chance to see Kelly in the larger surf on that final day. He only surfed two heats, and he looked comfortable, fit, and fine in both. His best heat total was 13.57. But as we watched the finalists perform on that final day, I really did feel the void of Kelly. His surfing in the conditions that the final day provided is good enough to have won the event. He swaps positions with Gabriel Medina on the final rankings, moving one spot down into eighth place. And I'm sure he's praying for pumping eight-foot swell in the next event in Tahiti. Sadly, Julian Wilson finished 17th in this event and has fallen out of my discussion here entirely. The women's event saw three-time world champ Carissa Moore settle into what is clear to me is her rightful place in first on the rankings. While Stephanie Gilmore has many moments of sublimity, especially at J-Bay, Carissa is the most powerful and progressive and simply the best surfer on the women's tour. Her undeniable kindness and humility seem to belie her superior talent. And if she had Courtney's tenacity, I'd imagine that Carissa would probably have 10 world titles under her belt. Sally Fitz came into this event with a Jeep Leaders yellow jersey, but never really looked comfortable in it. And she never looked like she was equipped to beat Carissa, Lakey, nor Steph. And she ended up losing in the quarterfinals to Malia Manuel due to her own undersurfing on the two waves that had fully the potential to get the scores that she needed. She moves to second place on the rankings. Event favorite Stephanie Gilmore lost to fifth place Caroline Marks, and Lakey Peterson looked sharp, fit, and confident as she surfed to a second place finish. Despite Carissa's win, her new first place ranking, and her superior natural talent, Lakey Peterson actually seems to perhaps have the most focus and desire for a world title this year and maybe even the most improvement from 2018, a title campaign year for her that fell apart at the end of the season. She's had an injury this season, and she, again, doesn't quite have the same raw talent of either Carissa nor Steph, but it seems that she's aware of that deficit and that she's actually super keen to do the hard work and training to compensate for it. She'll just need those girls to take their eye off the prize for a moment to give her another opportunity to seize like she did at Margaret River. Lakey moves forward one spot into fourth, and the women's next event is the Freshwater Pro in a wave pool, an event that Carissa won last year. Aside from eventual heat winner in the men's division, Kaloe Andino showed the most focus as that mid-place marathon runner. Yet to win an event on tour ever, he's quietly emerged as the most consistent surfer of 2019, making two finals and two semifinals in six events. 
He got the best barrel of the event and was the only surfer landing airs in every heat. And I'm talking big, risky airs. Even when the wind was offshore on that final day, when Felipe, Idolo, and Gabe all opted to stay on the wave face, Kaloe threw a big, lofty alley-oop to close out his heat against Ace Bucken. This is coupled with the fact that Kaloe has not wavered from sound heat strategy. Simply using his priority on the best two waves in each heat and surfing those waves to their potential. That is until he drew Gabriel Medina in the semifinal and instead strangely opted for the first wave of the heat, a smaller inside wave that undoubtedly Kaloe ripped, but because of the size, he only got a 6.5 and Gabriel was left out the back to meet a set wave that he surfed kind of half-heartedly to an eight-point ride. A small mistake by Kaloe, but then he strangely chose to double down on it and he stayed busy for the rest of the heat. He caught 10 waves to Gabriel's five. Gabe's two scoring rides were, in fact, the two biggest waves of the heat. Despite that loss and despite not being on the two best waves of the heat, Kaloe served up the most exciting moment of the heat with another massive alley-oop. These highlight moments of Kaloe validate a hypothesis that I've set forth earlier in the season, that he's been reserving performances and energy in those early events, and that he's actually building his season, not an individual event, to a crescendo and increasing performances along the way. He leaves J-Bay in first place on the rankings for the first time in his career, a position that John John Florence has vacated due to injury. And nobody builds to a year-end crescendo better than Gabriel Medina. Although I never suspected that he does that intentionally, his habit of breaking late in the season has always appeared to be an effect of perhaps a hangover induced by a stellar end to the previous season. He'll win a world title, final at pipe, live a celebrity life off season, and then comes into snapper with a target on his back and the bulk of the media attention. That's enough to distract anybody from winning a few events at the beginning. Coming into J-Bay, he had three fifth places and two 17ths. As the waves improved throughout the J-Bay event, so did Gabriel's performances. His boards are known to have a lot of volume, especially in the tail. And this looked to be a huge advantage as the waves grew to double overhead in the final against Idolo Ferreira. Gabriel never pumped his board. He'd simply drop in, engage the fins, fly down the line. When a lip would present itself, he'd engage the rail, smash straight into the lip, usually free fall back into the wave, and he'd carry all of that speed right into the next section and do it again. He'd seamlessly transition from everything, bottom turns, soft sections, free fall drops, all of it with the exact same pacing of speed throughout the entire ride. Gabe looks more dialed into his equipment than any other surfer on tour. And reali the reality is he always has, and not enough people really acknowledge that or the good work of his shaper, Johnny Cabianca at Pucas. Idolo surfed great in the event, um, but there were plenty of waves in this final for both surfers. So heat strategy really became irrelevant uh, for the first time in the event. Gabriel combined classic lines into radical sections, all while exhibiting that seamless flow. And it earned him a 9.73 and a 9.77 for a combined heat score of 19.5, leaving Idolo comboed with a 16.77. And with it, Gabriel moved forward one spot into seventh on the men's tour, headed into Chopu Tahiti, an event that he's won twice in the past. 
That waiting period begins in one month on August 21st. I will see you then.